Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. We continue in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews. We come in chapter 8 to verses 6 and 7. Last Lord's Day, we considered the opening verses 1 to 5, considering the heavenly sanctuary. And this morning, verses 6 and 7, Hebrews 8, considering with the Lord's help, verses 6 and 7. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. The revelation of the glory of God in Christ, in Christ as the God-man, in Christ as the Word made flesh, remains the most sublime mystery the history of the world will ever know. God manifest in the flesh. I mean, these, these words, though very familiar to us, should knock us down to the ground every time we hear them. God was manifest in the flesh. This sent shock waves through the angelic host of heaven, ushered forth jubilant praise, glory be to God in the highest. I mean, to what can we really compare this mystery? To what can we compare this mystery, the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ? I mean, you, you think of it, God, the Word, all that that Word represents. God, the uncreated one, the one who is infinite and independent in his being. The one who is eternal in all that he is, in all of his attributes. Immutable. Truly the one who is incomprehensible. This is God that we're speaking of. And it is God, God the Son, taking into permanent union with his person, the nature of man, manhood, manhood, which is, which is created, not uncreated, is created, is temporal, characterized by its finitude, by its brittleness, by its weakness, by its limitation, by its changeability. Here is the creator joined to the nature of the creature. Here is the Almighty who comes in the form of a servant. We hear these things and we, we're left, what is this? What is this? It ought to stagger us because these are not just words, right? They're, they're a living reality. 
a living reality which actually stretches words to describe it. You know well, you know enough to know that this truth is a truth on which you can dwell for eternity without ever exhausting its depths. You know that. You don't need me to tell you it. But you do, you, you do need me to remind you. You need to remember that it is therefore a truth that can never grow old to us. It's a truth that can never grow old. It is always and forever fresh. It always remains fresh to the people of God. It's never, ever, 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 ever dry. Now, we, we may be dry. We may be dry in our reflection on it and our approach to it, to our, shit, to our sin and to our, our shame. But the truth itself, the reality itself, impossible. It can never be a dry truth. Indeed, it is, in fact, seeing it. It is, in fact, coming into experiential acquaintance with it. The reality of the incarnation, of the glory of God seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's actually seeing Christ that is that which warms our cold hearts. It's the fire that kindles our so often icy souls. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 8, and we've been hearing so much about the, the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ and of his superior priesthood and all that that entails. We've come now into chapter 8, and it opens with a description of the sphere, the, the sphere of his ministry. That as the, the great and final high priest of God, that ministry is carried out and conducted not in an earthly sanctuary, an Old Testament tent or temple, but it is actually executed within the sanctuary of heaven itself. So that our high priest stands in the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies in heaven itself. That which the Old Testament could only point upward to, Jesus now has entered into the fullness of that. And so it opens in verses 1 to 5, describing uh, the, the sphere of his, his ministry. But then it goes on in verses 6 and following, really through to the end of the chapter, to describe how, how Christ's superior priesthood is accompanied by a better covenant as well. In fact, this sphere of ministry in heaven is attached to this better covenant, which comes as a result. The two are connected, right, with the change of the priesthood and even the change of location, if you will, or orbit of, of his ministry comes as well the advance and advance in God's covenantal dealings with his, his people. And so the two are very much connected, and we'll see why that is important even more next week if the Lord spares us. But verses 6 to 13 are very important. You know, they're largely a quotation and uh, somewhat an exegesis of that Old Testament prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31. And so as we turn to that section next week, we need to consider, and this is of great importance to us, 
what does this mean? And precisely, what does this not mean? Because a mistake, an error, getting this wrong has all sorts of far-reaching consequences, catastrophic consequences. And so this morning, we're really just preparing the way to our consideration of verses 8 to 13 and, and seeing where it begins. Our understanding of the covenant and all that that means, the new covenant, and the words that follow begin, first of all, with the mediator of the better covenant. And so that's our focus this morning is on the mediator himself. We'll note three things. First of all, the better ministry of the mediator. First of all, the better ministry of the mediator. But now hath he, that is Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. So it begins with having obtained a more excellent ministry. So it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. He is the only mediator between God and men. Right? Mediator carries this idea of the middleman. Jesus is the only middleman. Right? He is what the Old Testament referred to as the daysman, who is able to lay hands on both God and man. He alone, in his unique capacity as the God-man, can serve as the mediator, stretching and reaching into, uh, the God, into God himself and wretched, uh, reaching and stretching uh, to manhood on, on the other side. Now we have Moses, of course. And in Galatians 3, verse 19, Moses is referred to as a mediator. But he's referred to as a mediator, not in the ultimate and fullest sense, but in a partial sense, in a limited sense. Moses was a faint type. He was an inadequate picture. He was part of the shadow that was pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was going to be a prophet that would come after Moses greater than him, we're told. There's a priest that is to come greater than Aaron and so on. So Moses is a mediator, but in a partial way. How so? He was a mediator in the sense that he came and declared the will of God to God's people. Right? He went up into the mount and received from God's hand the law, and he delivers it to the people. Thus saith Jehovah. Right? He delivers to them the will of, of God. And then he's also a mediator because he turns around and he goes from the people to God and intercedes for them. And he prays, Lord, spare them. Don't destroy them. Don't cast them away. You know, grant them mercy, right? He's mediating, he's interceding for them as, as God's people. And so he's a mediator in that limited capacity. But here we're told of the Lord Jesus Christ who obtained a more excellent ministry. In a sense, Moses' ministry was excellent as far as it went. But Christ's ministry is more excellent because Christ alone can be the only and ultimate and fullest true mediator. The Bible says there is, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Think of the Old Testament language. How can two walk together except they be agreed? This is found in, in the mediator. Now that, that, that idea of mediator or the idea of mediation, right? His ministry, his service, Mediation presupposes conflict. 
mediation supposes opposition, right? We, we're familiar with that even in our own little world, you know, in, 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 in legal, legal society, though, the judge may call for mediation. And so someone's to come and mediate between these two parties rather than, you know, going to the full extent of law and so on and so forth. We get that, right? Conflict, opposition. In this case, of course, the fault is entirely with man. All of the fault belongs on our side. But the mediator is the one who comes to reconcile, to reconcile God and man. He does so not merely, not only by pleading for them, he does that, but by actually removing all of the obstacles to communion between the offended creator and the offending creatures. Right? Jesus comes and he removes all the obstacles between the one who is infinitely holy and those who are hopelessly sinful, between he who is the light and we who are in darkness, between the one who is beauty itself and we who are deformed in our, in our sins, the one who is just and we who are guilty. Jesus comes to actually clear out of the way everything that stands between God and man in order that they might be brought together. As I said, Moses' ministry was, was excellent. You see it in verse 5. You know, he's being used by the Lord in order to give them these Old Testament pictures of heavenly realities. You come in chapter 9 and you see more of his, his ministry. He spoke all the precepts and he took the blood of the calves. He sprinkled the book and the people. He taught them of the blood of the testament and so on sprinkling the vessels of ministry. So this is, this is what Moses is carrying out, but it's all preliminary. You can see it. It's all incomplete. It's temporary. It's shadowy, right? It's, it's only able to convey in pictures what will ultimately be seen in its fullness and reality. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ with a more excellent ministry, a more excellent service, in verse 2, he's described as a minister of the sanctuary, a minister of the heavenly sanctuary. It's more excellent because he is true God and true man. It is more excellent because his ministry is conducted in the heavens themselves as the God-man. If the Lord Jesus Christ as mediator were not true God, and if the Lord Jesus Christ as mediator were not true men, and if he wasn't true God and true men in two natures, in one person, if he wasn't so in a single person, there would be no salvation. Not of a single soul. From Adam and Eve to the end of time. He must be fully God, fully man, united in one person for there to be the salvation of God's elect people. If he's not God, then there's no efficacy in being able to secure an atonement for all of the elect. If he's not man, he can't die in man's stead. Can't die at all. God can't die. He needs a human nature who can shed his blood as a sacrifice and offer himself for an atonement of sin. And all of this must be in one person. His ministry is more excellent, his service. You think of, what is it 
that bars us? What is it that bars mankind, bars sinners from communion with God? What is it that creates this opposition, this conflict, this unreconcilable division between God and men? Well, I'll give you three things. We could give you more, but I'm going to give you three. Three things that bar man from communion with God. First of all, the guilt of their sin. The guilt of sin. Here is man. He's declared guilty as a lawbreaker, as a transgressor of God's holy law. He's rebelled. He's disobeyed. He's guilty. And he can't remove the guilt. Man, with all of his strength of mind and and abilities and resources, it's impossible for man to remove his own guilt or to remove another man's guilt. Nothing can do it. He can't die for himself. He can't earn some way that will pay off the removal of that guilt. It's, it's impossible. The guilt of sin bars him. The second thing is the blindness of his own heart. He is spiritually ignorant, spiritually blind, incapable, unable to see, to see Christ in his glory, to see, to see himself in his own sin, to see the gospel, to see the way in which that gospel brings sinners to, to, to Christ. And he can't heal his blindness. There's nothing physically or spiritually that can be done. There's no, there's no, 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 no person or priest or anyone else he could go to that say, you know, heal it. Heal the blindness of my soul. Impossible. The third thing is the bondage, the slavery, the bondage to sin and Satan. The natural man is absolutely enslaved under the power of sin and under the dominion and tyranny of the devil. There have been people that have broken out of Alcatraz. There have been people who have escaped from other seemingly difficult prisons. But no one can ever or will ever in their own strength break the chains of sin. No one will ever be able to deliver themselves from the dominion of the devil. It's humanly impossible. This is the plight. This is the circumstance in which the natural man finds himself. Cut off from God by his guilt, by his blindness, and by his slavery to sin. Now enters the mediator. Onto the scene comes the Lord Jesus Christ. The mediator who has a more excellent ministry or service than any other. And you can see it because as mediator, he comes in the exercise of his service as a priest. And as a priest, as the anointed priest of God, he is able to make satisfaction for sin. And he does so. He does so by offering up himself as the final sacrifice for sin. He's able to cancel the guilt of sin. He's able to satisfy the wrath of God against that sin because of his more excellent ministry as a priest. And then he's able also as priest to intercede and to plead in prayer for all that they stand in need of. Prayers which are efficacious and powerful and always answered and fulfilled. And so unlike the Old Testament ministry, 
with priests who needed to be sprinkled with blood themselves and who had to confess their own sins, with lambs and goats and oxen and doves and other sacrifices, which could never themselves in the shedding of their blood wash away sin. Unlike that service, we have the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, who as priest removes the guilt of sin. But then he also comes as the mediator, as the God-man, in his capacity as the Lord's anointed, as a prophet. And he exercises his service as prophet. And what does he do? He comes to those who are blind and he gives them sight. He reveals all the will of God to them. He comes by his spirit and illuminates their minds so that the dead or so that the blind are enabled to see. He enables them to behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus, enables them to see their own sin, enables them to see the riches of grace in the gospel. He enables them uh, to run in that way through the narrow gate and so on. It's God. It's, it's the God-man in his ministry as prophet who reveals the will of God. Remember how the book opens. God who at, who at, who at diverse times and sundry places revealed his will through the prophets hath in these last days revealed these things unto us by his son. Right? Christ is the great prophet who addresses the blindness of hearts. But then he also comes as the God-man, as the mediator, and exercises his service as a king. He comes as a king as well, as the anointed king, in order that he might deliver his people from the bondage of sin and Satan. In his cross work, he destroys sin, death, Satan, hell. He triumphs over it. He wins the victory over it. And as, as the God-man who is king, he gathers a people to himself, an elect people out of different tribes and tongues. And he subdues them to himself and then he governs them. And he, he promises and pledges to, to destroy all of their and his, his enemies. And then he not only gathers them and governs them, he glorifies them with himself as a great king. This is a more excellent ministry. The mediator of the new covenant has a more excellent ministry as priest, as prophet, as king, as the anointed Christ of God in the service of his people. My friends, these are not just propositions to affirm, though we must do that. We must affirm the propositions. But it's not just that. This is a person to adore. Christ is set before us as the God-man in all of his glory, in perfect Godhood, and in perfect sinless impeccable manhood. In one person, in order that we might see glory, that we might behold the luster of his glory and adore him. Because it is the sight of Christ that warms our hearts. It's, it's this that lies behind that injunction that the believer is to live unto Christ. We're to live unto him. Paul says to the Corinthians, by a way of contrast, you're not to live unto yourselves. You don't live unto yourselves like the Gentiles and pagans. You don't live for yourself. You don't live 
with a view to yourself. You don't live in order to prioritize yourself, your pursuits, your interests, your everything. But rather, you're to live unto Christ. It's the captivating sight of the glory of Christ as the God-man that fills and enthralls the hearts and minds of God's people. So that when the Lord comes and says, Son, give me thine heart. Like John Calvin, we give him all of our heart. Our pledge and promise, our desire is that he would have all of our heart. And that it would be set aflame with fire for him. That we would not live for self, which is to live under the creature. Right? That's idolatry. But rather to live under him who is the creator of the cosmos for his glory. Yes, there is a better ministry in this mediator. Secondly, there's the better covenant of the mediator. The better covenant of the mediator by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. The second replaces the first because the second is better than the first. It's a better covenant of this mediator. This is what verse 8 goes on to describe as the new covenant. Right? If you go down to the end of this section, it speaks of the old covenant as that which decayeth and waxeth old and is ready to vanish away. And so here is Christ. He's coming in the context of a new and better covenant. Right? Verse 7, if the old had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need for, for a new. But there is a need for a new because the old is faultless, is does have fault. Faultless, uh, fault, fault has fault in what sense? Well, not in the thing itself, right? It's appointed by God, designed by God, prescribed by God, instituted by God. God is the one who gave the terms under the old covenant, right? He's the one who appointed the ordinances and everything else that's associated with it. But it is not faultless in the sense that it is incomplete in the sense that it is temporary in the sense that it is preliminary and because of its temporary and limited capacity place is sought for a second covenant the covenant of grace you remember the context here the whole context is the Mosaic institutions. The whole context is these, these Old Testament ceremonies, the priesthood and all their stuff, the apparatus, the ordinances, the blood, the incense, the altars, and everything else that's associated with it. Right? That's the context. And we, we've, we've, we've been seeing all of that was anticipation. That's what it was. It was anticipation. But in the coming of the new covenant, we have fulfillment of all that had been anticipated. And so this new covenant um, replaces, and the Old Testament gives way to this new covenant. On one hand, we can emphasize, as we'll see next week, the continuity, right? There's one covenant of grace since the time of the fall 
to the end of time, there is one covenant of grace. And so under the Old Testament, though that covenant of grace is unfolded in initial words to Adam and the, the covenant with Noah and then Abraham and then Moses and David and these historical covenants unfold, open up the bloom of all that this covenant of grace entails. We recognize continuity, God's enduring promise in each of these, that I will be thy God and thou will be my people. I'll be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee. And lo and behold, we recognize that between Old and New Testament, there's one God, not two. There's one Savior and only one Savior. There's one gospel. And from the days of Adam to the end of time, there's only one salvation and way of salvation. There's only one covenant of grace, which brings about the administration of, of that gospel. And with it, there's only one people of God who are the redeemed and those that are called out into his visible body and so on. All of this undermines the continuity of the one covenant of grace. But there are points of discontinuity. And we affirm that. We affirm that there, are, there is a different administration, to use the language of Westminster Confession, chapter 7. In paragraph 5, it says the, the covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises of prophecy, sacrifices, circumcision, the Pascal lamb, other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come which were for the time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. And you go on in the next paragraph and it describes the New Covenant. And it says at the end of that paragraph, there are not two, therefore, there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So it's saying there's one covenant under differing administrations, if you will, an Old Testament administration and a new, but the substance is, is the same. Same in substance, different in administration. One foretells, the other fulfills. And so, with regards to that, he's saying this mediator is a mediator of a better covenant. The new covenant brings is better. It brings the full revelation of the will of God for life and salvation. Here we have the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which had been promised. Here we have him fulfilling in his glorious work all that was necessary to secure redemption. Here we have the ascended Christ pouring out the administration of the Holy Spirit upon his people and many other things like it that show, though the old was glorious, this is far more glorious. That the, that the old was good, this is better. A better covenant. You can think of it in a variety of ways. It's a better, better covenant, most obviously in our context, in terms of kind. Right? We have in the New Covenant the removal of the ceremonies and all the ceremonial laws, all of the institutions and regulations of that ceremonial law. 
Sacrifices are gone. Altars are gone. Priests are gone. All the rituals are gone. The significance of the land is gone. All of this other stuff. Shadows. Now we have the person. The new covenant is better because we have the coming of the Son of God himself. As the Word made flesh. Here we have the Lord himself. And so returning to all those Old Testament ceremonies undermines the finished and completed work of Christ and is repugnant and offensive to him. So the new covenant is better in this sense. It's also better in its extent, right? The expansion with, within the new, the new covenant. In the Old Covenant, it was largely confined to the people of, of Israel. Not exclusively. Gentiles were permitted into the covenant. They could be converted, circumcised, added into the covenant. And so we have examples of Gentiles who were. But it was largely the Israelite people with a small remnant of, of Gentiles. And it was primarily, as you've heard me say, a come and see religion. They had to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to see and hear and learn of all of the riches of, of the gospel and so on. Whereas in the new covenant, it's better because of this expansion. The Lord is pleased to graft the Gentiles in. Now in the new covenant, the church, the people of God is, is comprised primarily of Gentiles and with a remnant of, of Jewish uh, people as well. But the Lord says, now I want you to take it to the end of the world. The gospel is to go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a go and tell religion. He says, go preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. And so we see this great expansion where every tribe and tongue are in time brought under the proclamation of Christ crucified. All of that's predicted in the old, but it comes to its fruition in the new covenant. And it's better as a consequence. It's also better in terms of degrees. The blessings that come as a consequence of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of heaven. Right? We have these blessings derived from the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the giving of the fullness of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the, the more direct and immediate and intimate Communion with God, without human uh, um, priests and so on. Our direct access into the throne room of heaven. The increase of assurance and heightened power and sanctification and all that comes with this. The new covenant is better. He's the mediator of a better covenant. This is the orbit of the mediator's ministry. It's within the context of a better covenant, which is even more glorious than the one that has come before it. How can we forget? How can we forget him as the mediator of this better covenant? How can we forget him? How can we lose sight of him? How do we lose track of him? How do we allow our gaze to fall from him? I mean, if you have a child that is seriously, potentially, terminally ill, and you forget them, 
you know, someone comes and says, what, what, what happened? What about Johnny? What's going on? Oh, I, I don't hate Johnny. I just forgot about him. I just forgot him. You forgot him. How could you possibly forget him in his circumstances, right? We would all recognize this is easy. It's impossible. Well, how much more when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we not take our eyes? How can we take our eyes off of him? This is the mediator of a better covenant, the one who said, I am that I am, who has now come. The word made flesh and dwelt among us, mediating in this covenant of grace in all of his glory. Thirdly, we see better promises, better promises of mediator of the covenant. Verse 6. By how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So think, think this way. Communion with God is our only happiness. Right? We need to establish that clearly in our minds. Communion and fellowship with the triune God is our only happiness. Not just our greatest happiness, it's that. It's the sum total of our happiness. Communion with God is heaven of heaven. It's what heaven is. Communion with God is the beginning of heaven on earth in holding immediate fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And the foundation of this communion is the covenant of grace. Foundation is the covenant of grace, which has been established in the mediator of the covenant, the God-man Christ Jesus. And it is conveyed to us through promises. Now we're going to hear what these better promises are and what they mean and what the implications are when we get to verses 10, 11, and 12. You'll note there the God comes and says, I will. I will, I will, I will. Right? These are promises that are enumerated for us. As we'll see in, in verses 8 to 13, there's a basic continuity between the Old and New Covenants with reference to these promises. Because the Old Covenant had gospel promises. They had wonderful, glorious gospel promises. But the New Covenant is better and comes with better promises in terms of completion and consummation. In the new covenant, we come to the completion and fulfillment. It is chiefly the culmination of all that is promised under the new covenant that makes the promises better. It is, in other words, within the confines of the new covenant, not the old, that all of the elect come to the promised consummation of redemption. Right? This, this covenant of grace in the new covenant, it's inaugurated with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it, it reaches, its scope reaches, not just doesn't terminate with the coming of Christ, it reaches to the end of time. So that the, the, the culmination and consummation of the ages is part of this covenant of grace. And so 
these promise, the, the promised consummation of redemption in heaven is what is being, is being underlined here. Remember the context, verses 1 to 5? Jesus has gone into a heavenly sanctuary. And there's a heavenly orientation that we've been given. And now we're being told that the Lord has given us promises which are completed and culminated and consummated within the context, the orbit of the new covenant in what is to come in heaven and glory. And so it is the heavenly consummation that's in view here. As I said, inaugurated with Christ, but culminated in glory. I say all of that. Grant some patience. By God's grace, I will prove it to you. I think biblically and irrefutably next Sabbath, when we come to these promises and when we consider all that the passage is teaching to us. Better promises of this, this mediator because it is within the promises given within this new covenant that the people of God come into the full possession of a completed and consummated redemption. And all the glory that that entails. Who can touch that? What's comparable to that? Well, there are implications that come from this, aren't there? For those who are unconverted among us, it is an unspeakable folly. No, it's more than that. It's an unspeakable misery as well as folly to despise this mediator. To despise the God-man who with a better ministry and a better covenant and better promises is held forth to us in his word. To forsake him, to neglect him, to despise him, to refuse him is a sin against the greatest conceivable mercies. To hear the gospel, to have Christ set before us, Right? Worse than those who have the command of the gospel brought to them. Uh, worse than those, rather, who never have the command of the gospel brought to them. Here the Lord is coming. And he's setting forth Christ as the God-man. His suitability as a mediator. As one who is true God and true man in one person. His suitability in terms of the exercise of his anointed offices as prophet, priest, and king. His suitability in terms of being able to save in a way that transcends any other concept of salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ is being set before you. And the Lord is commanding you to come to Christ, to lay hold of Christ, to take Christ. He doesn't come and say, what do you have to bring? What can you give in exchange? Are you able to earn this? Are you deserving of this? No. We've seen already that that's all cut off as impossibilities heaped upon impossibilities. But rather he presents Christ as the one who is God and man. As the mediator of the covenant. Because he alone is able to lay hold of you sinner. And lay hold of God. And in his saving work to bring you to God and to fellowship and communion with God.
he is offered freely. And he is offered freely in contrast to the hell that you have earned, to the hell that you do deserve. Here is one who is set forth undeserved, unearned, freely received. There's also a word to the Christian. Christian, all of your needs, all of your desires, all of your inadequacies, all of your lack, all of, all of this and more is met in the mediator. The sight of him, the knowledge of his mediation drowns all doubts, all fears, all inadequacies. Here alone is the relief for all of our afflictions. Here alone is found the answer to all of our inconsistencies and all of our sins and rebellion. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the eternal Son of God, stooped to the lowest depths in assuming to him into personal, into union with his person, a human nature, in that, in that we who have human nature might be raised to the heights of God, that we might be infused with all of the life, divine life, that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we might have a share with him by union in him in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and might with him be exalted above the highest heavens. These are privileges which ought to humble us, but my friends, don't stay there. They ought to enthrall us. They ought to cause us to rejoice. They ought to, they ought to astound us. How is it that God has come in the flesh? How is it that we, sinful flesh, are to be raised by him, the mediator, to the heights of the highest heavens? This ought to be something that fills our souls with joy. By the grace of God, we not only affirm orthodox doctrine, but we adore the person of Jesus Christ. So that we say all our days, not only affirming it as a test of truth, there is only one mediator between God and man, but with a skip in our step and with joy in our voice, declaring as a matter of praise, there is only one mediator between God and man. Praise be unto God. It is Christ Jesus. Let us worship him. Let us serve and adore him. Let's stand together for prayer. Oh Lord, our God in heaven, we come in the name of this mediator, the God-man Christ Jesus, humbling ourselves under thy majesty and praying, grant that we would find reception in him, reconciliation, communion, and fellowship in him. Give us, O oh Lord, to enter into these privileges with a heart that rejoices over them, yea, with a heart that rejoices over him, that he would be the object of our joy, 
all of our desire and all of our delight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.